I think it would be of help if we focus on matters pertaining to context, uh, background, and perspective on one hand, and on the other in terms of uh, nationally stated uh, official interest. Uh, and perhaps this may be of value to those of you in political science and international relations uh, who are seeking a life and career in the world of foreign affairs and, and di diplomacy. Uh, because even now in your student status, you have heard consistently the word interest. And oftentimes it's stated uh, calmly, uh, coolly, and objectively. Uh, other times it's stated with emotional force and, and passion uh, and conviction, as well as controversy. Uh, so I think interest uh, would be a useful frame of reference uh, to look at Arab-U.S. Uh, uh, relations. And people end arguments, they win arguments, and they lose arguments on the basis of how well they are able to persuade others in terms of what is in a country's uh, national interest. Uh, you can imagine yourself, if you've not already been in uh, debates and discussions, and heated and seasoned argument amongst your uh, professors and, and fellow students when someone will shout or get red in the face and say we, we wouldn't do that because it's not in our interest. And oftentimes they use swear words, uh, full letter words to, to emphasize that compassion here. Uh, certainly in my experience of taking uh, 225 numbers of Congress and their Chiefs of Staff, Defense and Foreign Policy Advisors, and their Legislative and Communications Directors to, uh, to more than 12 Arab countries. Uh, I've heard them state amongst themselves and to me over and over and over that those who can combine reason with passion have the greatest chance of having their ideas uh, prevail. And what has been missing for so many of America's national leaders both those in the legislative realm who've been elected, as well as those in the executive realm who've been appointed, is the key aspect of empathy. Uh, there can be no genuine conviction or compassion <coughs> absent uh, empathy. And how does one get compassion and empathy? It doesn't come from the pages of a textbook. It can't be gained from a video. It can't be. Uh, derived from a particular uh, lecture, no matter how spellbinding that lecture uh, may or, or may not be. And so this is why we at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations have been asked so frequently uh, by the members of the United States Congress as well as the executive branch to take key Americans to the region, put them right in the middle of the Arab-U.S. relationship and let them discuss, let them debate, let them ask questions, let them cross-examine, let them uh, <clears throat> get into debates about uh, the reality of, of this, that, or the other. And then they bring that back and the theory and the thesis is that they will be better informed, more responsibly informed, more factually informed, and therefore uh, uh, more advantageous as a debater on, on behalf of what uh, their policies and positions and interests and needs and concerns and objectives that may be. 
So what about these objectives? <clears throat> Since the mid-1960s, I've tried to discipline myself every four years to sit down with up to 20 American real policymakers uh, and to ask them the simple, straightforward question, what are our interests in the Arab world? Why are we there? Why do we give a damn? Why should we care? What do we bring to the table? What do we uh, get out of the, these relationships? Is it a net uh, win, a victory, or, or loss? Is it a break-even? Um, uh, speak to me about uh, how you see America faring in terms of its interest in the region. So what I'm to share here is a way of organizing thinking, organizing analysis, organizing assessments uh, to help you better in your writing, your briefing, your arguing, your debating, and your effective representation of whatever institution you may belong to. And they have been given to me as follows in the rank order that I will present them. Most of them remain unchanged since the mid-1960s in terms of categories. Some of them remain changed in terms of where they are on the list of priorities. They are as follows. <clears throat> A set of strategic interests, I'll come back to these. A set of economic interests, a set of political policy interests, a set of commercial trade and investment interests, a set of defense cooperation interests, and a sense of people-to-people -people interest. In the last category, you may refer to uh, all of them together as soft power. And note that I put them in the last category, not the first, not the second, not the third, not the fourth, and this is in spite of the fact that they get more ink, so to speak, in terms of publications, in terms of people writing letters to the editor, in terms of reporting and talk shows and debates amongst political pundits on the, on the Sunday television as such, that they are the last will merit some discussion and perhaps disagreement debate when we come to the Q&A session here. But to go back to them one by one, my strategic, now we're talking about the overarching interest. In other words, interests that are not surpassed by any other interest, that these are the ones that are practically obvious, practically given, but like so many things in life that are obvious and given, we overlook them, and we overlook them often at a peril, or certainly often uh, embarrassing uh, mistakes. Here you can look at the strategic interest as follows. Uh, in terms of the presence or absence of war and the presence or absence of peace. And it would be arguably in America's national interest, in the national interest of the Arab uh, countries that describe themselves as America's friends, as America's allies, as America's uh, strategic uh, partners. Uh, the preference for an absence of war and the preservation and the promotion and the strengthening and the expanding of peace. And those are not just stated in terms of nouns and verbs, uh, arguably beyond serious, meaningful uh, debate. Uh, they have facets, features, aspects to them uh, that define and refine one's thinking and analyzing in this manner. That is to say, what are the threats to peace? What are the perpetuators of war? 
And where are those who claim that they're gaining strategic advantage or economic gain from one or the other, or perhaps even sometimes a combination of the two? The closure of the Hormuz Straits, which I leave to you to see on the map uh, behind me here, this body of water there, its physical closure is, for me, not just difficult to understand, it's impossible to understand. And this is because I have been to this body of water uh, 16, 15 times in the last 15 years. And taking with me U.S. Armed Forces officers from the United States Central Command to try to get a feeling for this body of water, how important it is and what is going on within this body of water. It's about 22 miles across and at much of the depths it's around 600 feet. So you have to imagine the largest tankers and carriers and frigates and freight vessels in the world being sunk and placed on top of one another in the exact uh, appropriate uh, places in order to block uh, this Hormuz Strait. So let's get this straight in our minds about the physical aspect. And probably you'd have to have the best parking attendant in the world on the bottom of the 600 feet in the middle of the Hormuz Strait in terms of trying to guide the ships down on, on top of, of one, one another in succession. So I don't believe it can be done physically, but it can be done physically from a different direction in the sense of psychology and emotions and fear and scare tactics. Uh, when someone could say, well, we've mined it, or anybody enter entering the Homo Strait will be subject to the laws of war. Uh, this will have the same effect psychologically on the pilots of all vessels who would have to call home to their boards of directors or chairmen or chief executive officers asking, should I or should I not go through the Hormuz Strait? So it could be closed emotionally, psychologically, optically, and possibly effectively uh, that way. Another one would have to do with the place far from the Hormuz Strait which is barely half as wide. Hmm. The Middle East went away. <laughs> this may be symptomatic and symbolic, as well as Persian. We were all here when it happened. <laughs> the other one... Pardon? Okay, well maybe you saw it before it went away, would be the bottom of the Red Sea and in between um, uh, the tip of, uh, uh, of Yemen and southwest Arabia uh, on the eastern side and Djibouti and Eritrea on the western side. This is between seven and nine miles across and uh, of uh, comparable depth but uh, easier uh, to see something uh, being blocked there. And psychologically, it has been used in a blocked way before. In the uh, October uh, 70, 
three war, uh, the Egyptian government declared that any vessel coming into the Red Sea north of a certain uh, horizontal place on the map would be entering a war zone. No ships tried to call Egypt's bluff at that time, so it was very effective. It, it wasn't the Babel Mandeb, the Gate of Tears, straight at the end of the Red Sea that was being blocked, but something north of it. And most of the vessels international coming into the Red Sea, heading towards the north, intend to go through the Suez Canal onto markets in the west, Europe and, and farther beyond there. Uh, so it was effective then. And what it did to the Israelis was uh, phenomenal. The Israelis up until that point had a very charismatic minister of defense by the name of Moshe Dayan. Most women found him attractive and charismatic and, and, and appealing. And you could remember him, he had a patch over his eye. Not like a pirate, but, uh, or the person from Van Heusen Church, which had a model like that, but he carried a patch over his eye, so he was indistinguishable. And he used to say before the Camp David Accord that if it is a choice between we Israelis retaining the Sharm El Sheikh, which is at the southwest tip of the Sinai Peninsula, or peace with Egypt, I'll take Sharm El Sheikh any day. But after what I just shared with you became known, uh, Israel had to change its mind that its strategic interest on war and peace issues was way far to the south, closer to the uh, Beltman Dead, the Gate of Tears there. A third example is the Suez Canal itself. It's been shut twice in history since its construction in 1869. Thank you. Um, maybe I can come again. In 1956, in election year in the United States, think in terms of what we're in now, timing politics often is said to be 90% of success. The Israelis waited until the United States were in the last week of their presidential election when they invaded Egypt along with France and Great Britain and the canal was closed, shut to all traffic, north and south for the better part of a year. It was disastrous, catastrophic, on the strength of the pound sterling of the French franc. It was not disastrous on the United States because America was not as dependent upon the Arab uh, Gulf and Peninsula oil and gas supplies as it subsequently uh, became. In the June 67 war, when the Israelis invaded Egypt again, the canal stayed shut for eight years. And this had its own devastating and catastrophic effect on many countries that had grown dependent on that. So I've given you three examples. I'll give you a fourth one. As the Iraqis were uh, withdrawing from Kuwait in January of 1991, they set fire to each and every one of Kuwait's oil fields. Altogether, 732 of them. They took out of commission the entirety of Kuwait's oil and gas production. And indeed, the day after 
Iraq invaded Kuwait on August the 2nd of 1990, the United Nations Security Council, working with Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and other uh, countries, said that anybody purchasing Kuwait's oil or Iraq's oil uh, would be uh, punished. They would, uh, those 4.5 billion barrels a day of oil and gas coming out of Kuwait and Iraq uh, were embargoed. Uh, but rapidly, the price went up fast until Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, and to a degree Iran and to a degree Nigeria, came in to make that 4.5 billion barrels a day uh, up for what was taken off the market. And hence the price came back down. So that gives you a fourth uh, strategic uh, scenario. A fifth one is what we're looking at right now in terms of will the United States or will Kuwait or will some combination of the two initiated uh, an armed attack against Iran. So stay tuned for that. Another way of looking at strategic issues has to do with numbers. In other words, if you're a generalist, if you're new to the field, looking at numbers that are undeniably true can help you think strategically. So if we think in terms of energy, some 60% of the world's known proven hydrocarbon fuels reside in the Arabian Peninsula in the waters off of its shores. And that aspect of it is a geological fact, and it's also an economic fact, a geopolitical fact, a geostrategic fact. Ponder the following. Up through the 1990s is a good time to look at what I'm about to say, because through the 1990s, on most days, the production of oil by America was the same as the production of oil by Saudi Arabia. Roughly, let's take an average for the decade of seven and a half billion barrels a day. Freeze that thought in your mind for a moment and let's look at the following numbers. For America to get its 7.5 million barrels a day, it had to get it from 650,000 oil wells, almost all of them driven by a pump, hence an, an additional uh, economic cost. For Saudi Arabia to get its 7.5 million barrels a day, it got them from fewer than a thousand wells. At that time, the average production of an American oil world was 14 barrels a day. The average production of most of Saudi Arabia's wells was 12,000 barrels a day, and almost none of them uh, with a pump. And so in terms of a vital strategic, economic, national security feature and aspect uh, to America's foreign relations and foreign policies, those numbers are unavoidable. Those numbers carry with them their own implications there in terms of the United States being the world's single largest consumer of oil, single largest importer of oil, single biggest wasters of oil, and single loudest crybabies and complainers about its relationship to oil. I mean, here we are, not a day passes without 
multiple commentary on the television, radio, and the print media about the price of uh, uh, the, the gas at an oil pump of being $3.90. Without any context, without any background, without any perspective, without any comparative numbers of what it would cost if Americans went to Rotterdam or Amsterdam or Tokyo or Seoul, where the president has been for the last few days, in terms of the price there being three to four times as high. But absent the national debate in those countries, so something is missing with that picture. And partly it's because America's national leaders, whether Republican or Democrat, have not leveled with the American people, have not told the truth, have not been the leaders at the educational, factual levels, as I just tried to be. One can come at the use of numbers in another way, in terms of human beings, like all of us in this auditorium here, in terms of the world's 7.2 billion. Half of the 7.2 billion, in terms of religion, in terms of faith, in terms of theology, worship a sky god. The other half do not. The half that do are Jews, Christians, and Muslims. 15 million Jews, 2 billion Christians, and between 1.2 and 1.6 billion Muslims. The rest are largely Confucians, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Taoists, Sikhs, and other non-Skygod worshipping uh, peoples there. And so in terms of favoring some amongst those numbers and alienating others, ponder what is not written about in most of the American media, namely the American-Israeli relationship on one hand and America's relations with the world's Arab and Muslims on the others. If we stick just to the numbers, we're talking about America favoring five million at the expense of provoking, frustrating, antagonizing, and insulting up to 1.6 billion Muslims on matters of justice and some 280 million Arabs, okay? Five million are favored at the risk of alienating and provoking and angering and turning against the United States, 280 million Arabs, and between 1.2 and 1.6 billion Muslims. Think of yourself as a policymaker. Think of yourself as a decision maker. Think of yourself as having commander-in-chief roles in terms of keeping America out of wars, in terms of prolonging peace, in terms of securing security as a prerequisite to peace and prosperity there. So those numbers have their own implications as well. Think of it in terms of states, international relations, relations amongst nations. There are 22 Arab countries, 28 Middle Eastern countries, and 57 Islamic countries, favoring one at the eastern end of the Mediterranean 
at the risk of provoking or making problematic America's relations uh, with the 22 Arab countries, 27 of the Middle Eastern countries, and 57 Islamic countries, begs the question of, on the altar of what gain, what need, what concern, what interest, what objective is being fulfilled by a skewed, grossly imbalanced relationship such as that. Stick with numbers for a few minutes more in terms of economy, in terms of finance, in terms of budgets, in terms of monetary realities, and ponder the implications of the following. Since 1979 and the formation of the Camp David Accords, the United States taxpayer has allocated, authorized, and appropriated to Israel $150 every second, $6,777 every hour, $336 uh, million, uh, thousand, uh, dollars, uh, uh, an hour, excuse me, $6,777 a minute. $336,000 uh, 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 an hour and $10 million a day ever since 1979, all right? I think we get the point in terms of how we can go at issues of grand strategy and the economics of it, the people-to-people -people aspects of it, the financial aspects of it. On the economic interest, to speed this up a bit, the interest is very simple and straightforward and quite candid. It's namely access to the region's economic resources. Regardless of price, regardless of levels of supply, but sheer access, uh, because as I said, the United States consumes this particular resource of hydrocarbon fuels more than any other people. It's the number one user, number one importer of this. So the sheer access to this, this is relatively new since 1973, at the end of the last oil embargo. The people in the American government, and many in their allied governments in the West, have broken the economic part apart from other aspects which we'll come to momentarily. The third context of interest is policies or politics but with an understanding that's oftentimes violated of non-interference in the domestic affairs of one another's countries there. It's more insistent on the Arab and the Middle East and on the Islamic side than it has been on the American side. Or let's it say it's less violated on the Arab, Middle East, and the Islamic side than it is violated on the American side. And we come to the third interest, fourth interest rather, which is commerce or trade investment and the establishment of joint business ventures here. And this has been separated out from the economic interest since 1973 and made an interest all unto itself. And indeed, they took the commercial counselor office out of the Department of State, where it had been for generations and put it in the Department of Commerce where it has been ever, ever since. But why was this done? It was done for the following reason. 
we go back to the economic one of an increasingly high energy import bill. And therefore it is in a strategic, tactical, and other interest to try to export as much of America's goods and services and products to this region as possible in order to lower that economic import bill and in order also to prolong production lives and lower per unit production costs and assist in terms of employment and jobs and infrastructure and research and development and science and technology that comes with the furtherance of that particular interest. The committee I sit upon in the Department of State, the Advisory Committee on International Economic Policy, it has been through consultation and consensus amongst us that the United States has no choice but to try to increase the number of its exports worldwide and to this particular interest region in particular. This is why Assistant Secretary Jose Fernandez has spent much of the last several months in Arabia, in the Gulf, in the Levant, in the Fertile Crescent, in the Nile Valley, in Arab North Africa, precisely in pursuit of that goal more than any other. We come quickly to the sixth interest, which has to do with defense cooperation in terms of agreements, in terms of access to facilities, in terms to arms purchases, in terms of interoperability of various equipment, in terms of notions of deterrence, and notions of defense, and military education and training in pursuit of those kinds of defense and national security objectives. And imagine I haven't but now come to the soft power one having to do with what the press would refer to as democratization. Or I think more objectively can be put political pluralism. For the longest time there was a resentment amongst many of America's partners and allies in this region at America pushing this particular interest uh, there because of the difference in cultures and the differences in beliefs and practices and institutions and ideals and ethics and moralities that add up to a large component of people's different cultures. And I remember back in the 70s, the Omanis asked me to help them with formulating a way to talk with Americans about um, what Americans insisted would be democracy, but what on the Omani side, they weren't quite ready to use that word. And for weeks, I struggled over various language uh, that might be able to be suggestive of progressivism or liberalism or dynamism or at least momentum going into greater participation of people in national political life. And the phrase I came up with was to broaden the degree and, and nature and extent of popular participation in the national development process. They liked it a lot, because it had a nice cadence to it there, and it suggested implicitly and explicitly a degree of dynamism and momentum. But we've come a long way since then, because most of our Arab friends and partners use the word democracy also. And yet I think on both sides we use it irresponsibly.
and we mislead listeners and readers and more than we educate and inform them in a knowledge and understanding informed and responsible and accountable way. For example, we, we talk constantly in the political realm about uh, Israel as being the only democracy of the region, uh, which anybody putting under a microscope would see to be false on the face of it, indeed false in terms of the entire body of it there. Uh, just to be controversial, not really, but trying to be more factual and insightful and incisive and educational, I would accept that Israel is an ethnocracy, an ethnocracy, where one people based on their ethnicity have greater constitutional, political, and related rights than those who are not of that ethnic group. Or I will even accept that Israel is a theocracy, or not a theocracy, but a religiocracy, uh, where having to be from one ethnic group only, and one religious group only, can one, if one is elected to the Knesset, sit on the Intelligence Committee, or the Defense Committee, or the Security Committee, or the Economic Committee that deals with nuclear issues. You're barred from sitting on those committees if you're elected to the Knesset, not because of your grades and your academic pedigree and diploma. No, you're denied on the basis of your race and on the basis of your religion. And so Americans need to ask themselves, is it fair, is it right, is it accurate, is it helpful to refer to a country as a democracy simply because it refers to itself as one when it legally, constitutionally, has two different classes of citizens, and the differences is based on race and religion. And so perhaps it's more helpful if we talk about pluralistic political orders, or civil rights, or human rights, or gender rights, or women rights, in civil society organizations, and relative openings of freedom of press, freedom of speech, and freedom of, of association. We have spent more ink writing about these things and talked about these things more than we have the other six. And yet, we have yet to mobilize and deploy forces in favor of this sixth one. And if I'm correct on my analysis and my facts here, this would suggest the following that such categories of interest are psychologically indulgible, but politically expendable. I'll stop here and take your questions and complaints, and um, hope we'll have a discussion where we will learn from each other. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. 
If, did I understand you correctly about the changing the oil? In the region? Yes. Okay, and what, what about the implications of that? Yes, well, how will you see that affecting the U.S. airspace? Okay. Others? Yes. Yes, sir. I wonder if you have ever been invited to go to APAC. Have I ever been invited to? Go to APAC. Well, that can be answered almost yes or no. <laughs> uh, the answer is no on that one. No, I'm not. But I have testified before Congress uh, and more than once. And um, as I said, we've, we've taken more members and staff of Congress to the Arab world than all of the other organizations combined. And some, some of the results have been unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, third substantive question. Yes, ma'am. state the case quite well. Um, for those who may not have heard, she asked, might there be some opportunities uh, for ongoing discussion about Saudi Arabia, among other issues or countries, uh, with those that she went with to Saudi Arabia, so that uh, there could be a follow-up dynamic uh, to this. The answer is yes, uh, and yes, assuredly, we, we would be happy to do that, and we have done that on occasions, um, and we have tried our best uh, to follow up in whatever way we could. Since um, September the 11th, uh, 2001, uh, the ongoing impact of that uh, made the atmosphere less receptive on Capitol Hill, and the moment less politically or procedurally propitious uh, but now it's been more than 10 years, and um, of course we would be happy to meet with you or anyone uh, to hold such a follow-up seminar as such. 
but in terms of reference to Saudi Arabia, I'll come to that momentarily. Uh, one of the questions was when the oil production begins to decline in that region, uh, what about the alternatives or the replacements uh, of it and the implications? Is that the question of it? Yes. Well, I don't. I don't see it declining in the in the most powerful, prodigious producers uh, of the moment. A country like Bahrain, which was the first of the Arab countries to produce, has long since fallen to fewer than forty thousand barrels a day. Um, although it refines more and it exports more. And you could look at the CIA handbooks where they will show that Bahrain's production is this amount, but its refining and exporting is that amount, and the figures don't agree. This is for two reasons. One, and you can see both reasons if you fly over the waters between Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, there are pipelines from Saudi Arabia's fields in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia into Bahrain that augment the amount of oil that Bahrain produces. So that explains the, uh, the discrepancy. But there are other countries that do not seem to have more than 10, 20, or 30 years left for that known production. These would be mainly in Arab North Africa, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Levant. In the case of Saudi Arabia, we have something like 259 billion or 200 and $62 billion of known crude reserves. I don't see anybody debating or disagreeing with that. That's the known proof. That's $259 billion. Saudi Arabia has 25% of all of the world's known proven oil reserves. The United States has 2.5%. So Saudi Arabia has almost 10 times as much as the United States. And as I mentioned, most of Saudi Arabia's wells, overwhelming majority of Saudi Arabia's wells, are, are driven by pressure, not by pumps, this extra uh, energy cost as such. So uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia, uh, the running out will not be in my lifetime, your lifetime, or your grandchildren's uh, lifetime at the current rate of production. And given new breakthroughs regularly in technology over the last quarter of a century, even countries that uh, a quarter of a century ago were said to have only 10 years left, they're still producing. And some of them at a greater level than they were then because of new advances in technology, including horizontal uh, driven, drilling as opposed to just, just this. And a horizontal drilling can go way over there, miles, uh, uh, to get tap into new resources. And at first, where maybe there was just one pipe going over, now they call it fishbone. In other words, they, they have multiple pipes that go there. Oman is a case in point. Uh, Oman, and, and when the news came out that Oman was uh, almost in a disastrous or dire situation, and it was, this new technology came to the rescue. The primary operator of petroleum exploration and uh, and production in Oman, the easternmost Arab country, is Royal Dutch Shell there. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell's chairman of the board had to resign in, uh, less than 10 years ago for overestimating the amount of oil in the ground in Oman. Uh, he, he was stretching, he was exaggerating there. 
But while he's gone, the Omanis have absorbed this new technology and they're producing as much, if not more, than they have in a very long uh, period of time. Uh, there are other countries where this is also the situation where there's more remaining than people could begin to imagine. Saudi Arabia itself is one of them. Uh, perhaps His Royal Highness could correct me on this, uh, but I believe Saudi Arabia has more than 81 fields, known fields of oil uh, uh, deposits, but it has never produced from more than 22 of them. In other words, 60 of them are in the closet, in the garage, haven't even yet been touched. Whereas in our situation, still at two and a half percent of the world's uh, known reserves. Uh, but the uh, politics of this uh, will change and already have been changing faster than the economics of this. If you look at each of the past American president State of the Union addresses, going back to 2005 and now through 2012, every single one of America's presidents has used the phrase of the strategic need to end America's reliance on foreign oil. It doesn't say Arab oil, doesn't say Middle Eastern oil, doesn't say Islam, but it's a code word for that. Because our reliance on Canada's oil and Venezuela's and Mexico's is, is quite different. And here is why we come back to the politics and the geopolitics of this. Up until about six years ago, the American strategic objective regarding Arab, Middle Eastern, and Islamic oil and gas was security of supply. Security of supply. And Saudi Arabia and other countries were able to say since October 73, every single barrel promised was delivered uh, to the uh, purchasing uh, country. So it has been secure and ongoingly secure uh, in uh, Eastern Arabia and the Iranian and Iraqi side of, of the Gulf. But somewhere along the way, I cannot give you the year or the date, whether it was a Thursday or Friday or Sunday or Monday, that debate, that consensus, that national agreement, that a strategic goal was security of supplies has changed to become divorcing America from Arab and Islamic oil as effectively as possible. Not to stop driving, but just don't drive on Arab and Islamic oil. That's been driven completely by domestic forces here in the United States. And by domestic forces, I mean those who are anti-Arab, who are anti-Muslim, who are anti-Saudi Arabian, who are anti-Iran, who are anti-Iraq, who are anti-any of the 22 Arab countries, or the 26 Middle Eastern countries that are uh, Arab and Islamic. Two are not, Israel is not, Lebanon and its charter as president must be uh, Christian as such. Uh, so that's been driven uh, domestically, and it relates to the representative of Congressman Kanye's office here. That is, if you are a supporter of Israel, an ardent supporter, uh, an agent of, of Israel, a sympathizer of Israel, uh, you would have to recognize the following. One, that we're number one in America's hearts in terms of pocketbooks and purses, as well as wallets.
No one comes close to receiving as much of America's material well-being as this one country in the Eastern Mediterranean. And all the others that offer something more than Israel are in the queue. They, they're not number one. And so I try to be clinical, dispassionate, objective, and one would conclude that no one needs to fly over Israel or drive through to get anywhere of global strategic importance. And also it has no strategic mineral, either oil or gas or water, in the latter case except that which to a considerable degree it takes from others. Okay? And its policies tend to make a lot of people angry or embarrassed. In May, when um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu came, or was it May, was earlier this winter, when he came to the United States Congress and spoke to a joint session, he was giving a standing ovation more than 20 times. No American president has come close to that. And this is because of the effect of Israel and the minds and the purses and the pocketbooks of so many Americans. Those who stood and clapped and cheered, uh, Churchill, I think, had a phrase that they also serve who only stand and cheer, um, were intimidated as much as they were supportive, um, felt fearful to not be seen on nationwide television as standing and cheering uh, the head of state of another country. Uh, they did not feel this way in terms of when President George W. Bush addressed them or Barack Obama addressed them. So if I were an Israeli, a passionate, ardent patriot and citizen of Israel, it would be in my vested interest to keep this relationship going, to remain number one in America. And one way to do it is to kill the competition. And one way to kill the competition is to misrepresent it, is to misinform people about it, is to call people who say something uh, attractive or positive about it uh, to be an Arab lover or, or worse. Okay? And most people uh, don't have the courage of such convictions to stand up and fight this and talk back and, and focus and emphasize on the truth and nothing but the truth. So this aspect of the region running out of oil is not imminent, it's not urgent, it's not short term, it's not middle term, um, it's, it's long term at best. I mean Saudi Arabia doesn't have to discover another drop of oil to continue producing what it's producing now for the better part of a century if longer, not longer. The same thing with Kuwait, the same thing with Abu Dhabi, probably the same thing with Iraq once it's stable and secure, possibly the same thing with Iran once it's a secure and a player. Again, I'm sorry to give you a long answer, but that was the uh, question as such. Um, the second one with regard to Arab-US relations as strong as they need to be, um, or stronger, uh, stronger, was that the gist of it? And following up with, with individuals uh, to share this knowledge and information, if, if I'm correct that that was that question. Um, the answer, answer is yes. 
And amongst that which would be shared, and this is off the top of my head only, would be the following, that uh, Saudi Arabia can be likened, likened more to a, a continent than a country. I mean, it has 13, it has 13 neighbors. Okay? We think we Americans have only two neighbors, but Governor, former Governor Palin of Alaska reminded me of another one that she sees every day across the border in terms of the so Russia. And then there are those who live in the Keys of Florida who are where we have some other neighbors in terms of Cuba and the Caribbean. But uh, imagine if we had 13 neighbors and most of them more populous than us and all of them envious or jealous of us how different our life would be, how different our policies would be, how different our threat assessments would be. So it's, it, it cannot be ignored in terms of its sheer landmass regarding air flights and passages for, for naval vessels and the like. So those are two points. Point three uh, is that it is the custodian of the two holiest places uh, for Muslims, 1.2 to 1.6 million Muslims. Uh, if they're pious and they pray, or if they're pious and they pray and go on the Hajj, um, Saudi Arabia is in that, that focus in a very primary way that no other country in the world is with the exception of the Vatican State. Okay, the Vatican State represents 1.3 billion uh, Roman uh, Catholics, so it's analogous in this regard. And then fourthly, no other country in the developing world has been a founder of international organizations that are of relevance and importance to the United States. It's a founder of the United Nations. Uh, I mean, Prince, uh, then Prince Fahad represented Saudi Arabia, as then Prince Faisal uh, represented Saudi Arabia. And on February 14, 1945, was the historic meeting between Roosevelt and uh, King Abdulaziz bin uh, Abdul Rahman al Saud, and a kind of personal, emotional, accepting, trusting, confidence building relationship between that respective two heads of state uh, uh, took uh, root then. And on top of the fact that Saudi Arabia is also a founder of the League of Arab States, the world's oldest regional organization devoted to diplomatic methods to solving issues of war and peace. It's a founder of OPEC, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. That's a founder of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, based in Kuwait. It's a founder of the Gulf Cooperation Council. It's a founder of the Arab Monetary Fund. It's a founder of the Organization of the Islamic Conference. America's a member only of the United Nations one. And I would add the World Bank and the IMF. Saudi Arabia is a founding member and often a leader of all of the others. Indeed, here in Washington, perhaps he should pay you a call, is a new League of Arab States ambassador to Washington. And he's the first one who is a Saudi Arabian. And he's anxious to make such ties. So we can facilitate that. And then to carry it on further, Saudi Arabia denominates its exports not in French francs or Swiss francs or any francs. 
it denominates them in dollars as their reserve currency. And this is important to the ongoing preeminence of the American banking and financial system worldwide. And it does it through good days and bad, where it takes hits and where it gains. But it's never been weak on this, never wavered on this, never withdrawn on that. And so here's a situation where a country's protection and defense was actually paid for by the country being defended. That is, uh, when Iraq invaded Kuwait and implied or looked as though it, it was going to go further to Saudi Arabia and all the way to Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia picked up the tab not only for itself, but for those who helped it as well, uh, along with Kuwait in that situation. So we've had um, these kinds of things that maybe those who went with you to Saudi Arabia didn't pick up, or they don't remember, or they came back to an already overflowing inbox uh, and couldn't get around to doing it. Additional questions? If, if, uh, if we're still on time, if my watch is right. Yes? Your thoughts on Egypt, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, so-called Arab Yes, the question was out on Egypt, Morocco, and other Arab countries, the Arab Spring, and, and America's relations with those countries, with those issues. Well, Egypt first. Uh, that's where I started in 1963. Um, has to be viewed quite differently than those that we focused on in the question and answer in the presentation that lie east of Egypt. I think we can start with the following, that one out of three Arabs is an Egyptian. Uh, so this is a haunting, daunting, demographic and democratic reality uh, that cannot be marginalized as such. Uh, secondly, Egypt um, possesses the Suez Canal, and it has not shut it once on its own uh, in the history of the Suez Canal. Both times it's been shut as a result of the Israeli invasion of Egypt. And so the, what the Egyptians have done in allowing them Americas and NATO and other Atlantic-oriented allied powers to do in terms of mobilizing and deploying and getting their men, women, and materiel uh, to the strife-torn uh, Gulf uh, has been without uh, hitch, or it's been steady, and so Egypt has played that role. But to a larger generation and an older generation of Arabs, throughout Arab North Africa and throughout Arabia and the Gulf, Egypt almost taught a generation. Uh, its, its teachers went to almost every Arab country imaginable and served as teachers in the primary schools, middle schools, secondary schools. Um, and so it had that role with regard to bringing into being literacy and knowledge and understanding and the opportunities to, for social mobility to a greater degree than any other uh, Arabs. Um, I hope I'm, I'm in, in accord with what others see and say on this uh, because that role was phenomenal. Uh, fifthly, Egypt is the home of Al-Azhar, one of 
the world's, repeatedly the world's oldest institution of higher education. And so its pronouncements, its training of clerks, its training of lay people, its training of uh, those who would be pious and serve the needs of the pious it is met by no one uh, in, the, in the Arab world. Uh, so that's uh, point uh, five. Point six is that it has been a country at peace uh, with Israel since 1979, the first to be so, the longest uh, to be so. And while there are questions about how close uh, that accord of the Camp David will remain in the period ahead, what has to have been assuring to Israelis and Americans is that the Arab Spring in Egypt was not about the Camp David Accords. Uh, it could have been, it might have been, and it might yet take that form uh, for various reasons. One, uh, though it was Israel that invaded Egypt in June 67, in terms of whose country's territory was compromised, in terms of whose national sovereignty was compromised, in terms of whose territorial integrity was compromised, the answer to all three of those was the invaded country, not the invader. And that is, the Egyptians until now cannot enter into the easternmost part of the Sinai Peninsula without Israel's permission. Think of that. Since the uh, June 67 war ended, and since the uh, Camp David Accords. And so on elemental issues of justice, potentially you'll find more Egyptians uh, seeing the Camp David Accords is being flawed as containing a degree of injustice. Uh, I can see this coming. I can feel this coming. I have every reason to believe and know it's coming. And how the Israelis or the Americans will react remains to be seen. Uh, and it is a wonder that the Palestinians in Gaza as well as East Jerusalem and the West Bank have not themselves taken advantage of the same technology that the Egyptians and Tunisians took uh, to rise up and to claim their just legitimate rights. And so the question for all of us here is when and if that happens, and I think it's not a question of whether it will happen, but when, uh, what will be the American response? What will be the response of other Arab countries? I can't answer that, but I believe it's uh, drama coming to a theater near you and me. Um, in terms of Egypt, regarding Africa, uh, there are eight Arab countries that are also African countries, and uh, none have played the political role in regional world affairs that Egypt has played, or come close to playing it. Uh, there are possible exceptions to this, in terms of the extraordinary character, courage, and statesmanship of Nelson Mandela. But we're talking about something greater than an individual. We're talking about a role of a country and a people. Uh, Egypt was one of the five co-founders of the Non-Aligned Movement in, in terms of 1955. 
Egypt was the first country to break out of the manacles or the shackles of the Cold War or the Soviet bloc in terms of its arrangements with Czechoslovakia in the mid-1950s. So it's had longer, more diverse and extensive experience and impact, educational and empirical, on the rest of the Arab world and the Middle East and the Islamic world than most people would uh, give it credit for. Um, so that's on Egypt's aspect. However, the question was about uh, the Arab Spring there, and I'm troubled uh, analytically and in terms of predictive power to see how this is going to work out. Uh, of course, running throughout all of this in Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere is an elemental human quest for dignity. <laughs> dignity in terms of opportunity, dignity in terms of fairness, dignity in terms of educational access, Dignity in terms of being able to marry. Dignity in terms of <clears throat> being able to find affordable housing. Dignity in terms of being a proactive participant citizen <clears throat> with regard to the nature of one's uh, government or those who represent and rule with regard to the uses to which public monies are supposed to be put in contrast to the corruption element of where monies are put and the lack of accountability and responsibility. So these, these things run throughout Egypt and Tunisia to a far greater extent than they run through the countries to the east of them. And if it's more than 500,000 students graduating from Egypt secondary schools and universities looking for a job. I mean, what government can do that? What government can produce 500,000? What government can produce 400,000, 300,000, 200,000, 150,000 jobs every year? And if you ask that of Egypt, then the answer <coughs> is not Egypt. And all of those questions are formulated. It doesn't take rocket science. Uh, to imagine uh, what we're in for for quite a while yet to come. And Tunisia and Morocco also, there are millions of Moroccans and millions of Tun Tunisians who don't live in Morocco, who don't live in Tunisia. Uh, they're in Italy, they're in Spain, they're in France, they're in Portugal, and they're farther afield as well. Uh, this is not a good picture. Uh, and for the United States to say, well, we've got our own domestic issues and we can't do what we used to do before. And to a degree, we are saying that. To a significant degree, we're saying that. Where, where does the answer to those Egypt-centric, Tunisia-centric, and Morocco-centric uh, come from? The World Bank, the IMF, United Nations Development Fund, uh, I'm at a loss uh, to answer uh, that question of the Arab Spring and other countries with a more positive, upbeat outlook or analysis uh, than I've just shared. Other question? Yes? Dr. Anthony, you didn't, uh, is Syria in this context, uh, maybe not Arab Spring, and uh, 
No, it's an excellent question. In fact, this whole forum would be um, less than it could be or should be if uh, Syria was not focused on. Uh, my frame of reference is the following. One, I'm not a Syrian specialist. Going to a school or a graduate school where there's no possible graduation involving Syria, only a series of incompletes. Uh, but I back, favor, support those who until now have said or concluded through consultation and a degree of consensus that uh, military intervention is not the answer. Uh, it may come to that, but I don't think yet. It has reached that. Uh, ponder the complexity of the following of Syria in contrast to Iraq. <coughs> I mean, Iraq was catastrophic, disastrous. I mean, a whole country and a culture uh, laid waste by an illegal um, invasion and occupation. Syria, I would submit, is four to five times as complicated as Iraq. Syria has uh, 19 Christian sects, okay? same as, uh, numbers as Lebanon. Lebanon has 17, excuse me. Syria has 17 Christian sects. On the Islamic side, you have the Sunni, you have the Alawites, and you have the, the Druze, uh, each uh, sharing part of the other but standing largely complete in terms of how they vote, how they marry, uh, how they aspire to represent that community politically. Uh, not to mention uh, Kurds, uh, not to mention Palestinians who've all been forgotten about. Go to Damascus anytime and you'll, you'll see uh, the Palestinian aspect of it. Uh, and you'll see 1.3 million Iraqis as a result of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. Uh, two million Iraqis became external ref refugees and another two million became domestically dislocated people, refugees within the borders as such. If you take that number out of Iraq, come back to help us on the strategic analysis, Iraq's population then was 24 million. So four million uh, became refugees because of what the United States did and did not do. And did not do means not invade, not occupy. That is one, one sixth of uh, Iraq's population. To get a feeling for this in terms of empathy, uh, put yourselves in an American shoe of 300 plus million and 60% of that, uh, I mean, uh, uh, excuse me, a sixth of, of uh, the American population equaling the Iraqi refugees would be 50, 50 million people. 50 million Americans, uh, refugees in Mexico and Canada, half of them, the other half, not, not anywhere near their home. So that gives you a feeling for it because 1.7 of the 2 million uh, went to Syria. And, and this is not even mentioned. Or if it's mentioned, it's, it's marginal. Or it's discarded as, as a fact. 
because the Syria to which they became refugees in was just under 20 million versus the United States being 300 million. So Syria uh, took these refugees there. Would America take uh, such numbers? The last time I checked, the number of Iraqis that the United States has let into the United States has been fewer than 15,000. So a country of, of uh, 300 million has let in only not more than 15,000, many of whom were interrogators for the United States, many of whom were drivers or aides of some kind, in other words, collaborators with the occupying and invading regime. Here we are, 70 years after the Germans invaded and occupied France, and it is still a burning social and cultural issue in France of those French who collaborated with the Nazi invader. Okay. So compare what Syria did and has as a way for a humanitarian burden to feed and accommodate, provide shelter and safety and security and a fraction of dignity for the Iraqis who came to Syria with what the United States has done, given what America has in its resources and open spaces there. So I've just touched on two aspects of it. Um, the aspect of Syria as a peace partner amongst those that have been invaded and occupied by Israel is um, without a peer in terms of uh, the Golan. Most Arabs even, not just most Westerners, most Americans talk about the Golan Heights. Nothing could be more misleading. If you think of this here, this, these are the heights of this lectern. Yes, indeed, the Israelis took here. But they took all of this too. Syria has, uh, the Golan province is its richest in terms of resources provinces. 16,000 square miles. Uh, the Israelis took 12,000 of those 16,000 square miles. But not once has Syria violated the international peace and security accords that it entered into with Israel as such. So there's this third dimension of, of Syria. And then there's the Lebanon situation. And most of Americans of Arab ancestry for the longest time have been from Lebanon or Syria or and also Palestine, and they're grouped in associations here. Um, but the Syrian case towards Lebanon is a case that is usually drowned out in, in cool, dispassionate discussions amongst uh, Americans there. And the woman representative of the great Congressman John Conyers from Michigan has to grapple with these kinds of issues because amongst uh, the congressman's constituents are Lebanese Americans and Syrian Americans and Palestinian Americans and Yemeni Americans there. Not, not an easy thing here in terms of what you have to do on your day-to-day -day work there. Uh, so that compounds it the more. I think Syria's embassies here in Washington have not had a, an ambassador that would be received by anybody in the U.S. Congress 
the lower house or upper house. And not the same with regard to the ambassador of Lebanon. But if one does one's history, uh, it's uh, irrefutable that Lebanon was a part of Syria. In less than the past century, the reverse was not the case. Syria was not part of Lebanon. Okay? So you've got a, a non-mizan, an imbalance there in terms of history, people, rights, perceived rights, and, and facts on the ground. So uh, these are aspects that anyone intervening in Syria would have to deal with. Uh, and so when I said it's many times more complicated than Iraq, I've just touched on the surface of, of why that's the case there. Yeah. Um, so that's Syria. Thank you for that question.